Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Amy Schoen, who has spent her career working in public health and today is a digital health equity consultant and the president of Public Health Innovators, which provides digital health equity and patient engagement strategy support to health systems, governments and advocacy groups and community organizations. She and I discussed the impact of the digital divide and digital redlining on public health, how health policy and broadband policy need to intersect in order to address this problem, and what lessons have been learned thus far about digital equity and public health throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Just to start off, can you tell me a bit about your background and work on digital equity in healthcare and what your organization, Public Health Innovators, does? Sure. And thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. So I have a doctorate in public health. I've worked uh, in and around uh, healthcare and health research and academia and even the private sector uh, for my entire career. Um, The last 10 years or so, I directed the Urban Health Initiative at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. And during that time, I um, accidentally became an inventor of a digital health uh, tool. And through that, um, became uh, very uh, uh, interested in the opportunities that digital health tools offer for diverse and vulnerable populations. But the parallel concern that they were gonna exaggerate and make health disparities and make them worse because the people who could benefit most from them were not going to be able to access them. So I've been um, really passionate about that for you know eight years or so. I really tried to get healthcare organizations to be interested in digitally connecting with patients. And I didn't really get anywhere um, for eight years until about September into the pandemic when those health systems started calling me um, because they realized how um, that they had a big equity issue in who they were reaching with telehealth. So enough, I, I first got an invitation to be the research director of the National Telehealth Equity Coalition as a part-time consulting gig. And that gave me enough courage to quit my job the end of January um, and do full-time consulting uh, through my firm, Public Health Innovators, which I've had for several years but hadn't really done much with uh, until uh, January of this year. Wow. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about this uh, tool you invented? Oh, um, sure. (laughs) Uh, This was... um, uh, 10 or so years ago before the wearables craze. Uh-huh. And there was a company uh, called Body Media that had invented an armband that had sensors in it. And I realized that um, those sensors could be used uh, for a way that they hadn't thought of using them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I happened to have been talking with a friend of mine who's the uh, uh, key figure in uh, an engineering school uh, who said, Amy, this is a billion dollar idea. And um, so anyway, I uh, uh, pursued that a bit uh, and uh, 
didn't get anywhere. So that billion dollars. You're not a billionaire. Still around, you know, it's still floating <laughs> around and I uh, would love to uh, talk with someone to make that happen. All right. So whoever's listening who wants to make Amy's billion dollar idea happen, you know, give her a call. Um, but so back to the digital divide then. Um, so how does the digital divide and the practice of digital redlining, which I've talked a bit about on this podcast before, impact public health overall? And what do those impacts look like on the ground in real communities? Okay. So um, we, we got to back up about three steps to get to how digital redlining affects health. First is that we have tremendous health disparities in our country, and those disparities tend to be hyper-local. You've probably heard your zip code tells more about your health than your genetic code. Um, And the reason for that is that health is not a function of whether or not people get healthcare or have access to good healthcare, nearly as much as it is the social determinants of health, people's um, behavior, their ability to live healthy lives, get physical activity, buy healthy food, have education, jobs, income, employment. Those things um, are much more uh, impactful on health than um, healthcare. And not surprisingly, those health disparities then track with um, really segregation and um, you know, differences in neighborhood access to those things. So in my county, Cuyahoga County, uh, Ohio, where Cleveland is, um, the difference in life expectancy by census tract neighborhoods um, is 24 years. And the neighborhoods that have low life expectancy aren't randomly scattered around. If you look at a map in Cleveland, they track with what we call the Cleveland Crescent, like a C, that happens to be, if the neighborhoods happen to be 95, 98% Black. And right around there, they're more mixed. And then the whole rest of the county tends to be 98% White. Um, so we have huge segregation and you know all those things go together. And so digital redlining, of course, is happening in the very neighborhoods where everything else um, is a poor determinant of health. So the digital divide compounds um, uh, health disparities. Um, I wrote a paper a few months ago that's called Digital Inclusion is a Social Determinant of Health. And that's because um, having digital access enables people to affect all the social things that determine their health, their ability to get education, employment, apply for benefits, right. uh, et cetera, all require digital inclusion. Right. So I'll, and I'll, I'd love to link to that report if that's somewhere um, online, I'll link to it along with this podcast. Um, so let's talk then a little bit about the solutions. Uh, besides building broadband everywhere, what else needs to change to address this issue? Um Is it part of federal policies, local policies? Should health be part of broadband policy? Should broadband be part of health policy? Do we need new collaborations between healthcare institutions and ISPs? This just feels, these fields feel too far apart for me um, to see how these collaborations work without wonderful people like you forcing them together. So how do we do it? 
do you want the short answer? The short answer is yes. All of the above, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Now I can I can amplify that a okay. little bit. Um, I was thrilled that you you know the way you framed it should help be part of broadband policy. There's been a concept in health and public health for a number of years called health in all policies, and so the idea there is that any uh, policy being developed should take into consideration health. You know, I think we're familiar with the idea of you have to consider the environmental impacts of, you know, say a building project or, or what have you. The idea here is to think about the health impacts. So, so far, health in all has really focused on things like housing, roads, neighborhood, you know, construction, um, can kids walk safely to schools? But I haven't heard anybody saying, well, let's look at the health impacts of broadband policy. And so that absolutely um, needs to happen. On the policy side, um, you know, my lens is kind of through health. And so I think the real policy opportunity in health is for health insurance to pay for the cost of devices and connectivity and digital skill training for people. Wow. Right. So that's. <laughs> Sorry that's if I'm about, laughing. Yeah, yeah, insurance yeah. doesn't want to pay for uh, <laughs> like health care it, itself. But no, I think it's a great know, idea. <laughs> you know, it doesn't. But my my uh, my partner um, has uh, Medicare and he's got mm -hmm. this Medicare Advantage program. Um, and he gets like 90 or 120 bucks every quarter. Um, and we were actually looking at his receipt yesterday from a drugstore and almost laughing at the things that that policy covers. Right. I think that the links of what broadband could do for health are an awful lot clearer than the links of other things that he could have bought at the mm. drugstore on his health. That's a really good point. Very interesting. Um, okay. I don't want to take up too much, too much of your time. I could easily go off on a tangent um, about Medicare and Medicare for all here and <laughs> potential for broadband for all there. But anyway, sticking to the topic, um, you know, we haven't even touched on COVID yet. So let's round out this, this conversation. Um, the pandemic uh, certainly created an urgency around getting everyone connected to the internet. Um, Similarly, kind of to what we were just talking about, the gap in policy, do you think the same awareness exists around the need to address digital health disparities? And along the lines of COVID, what has COVID revealed about this specific problem and how to solve it? I imagine a lot of communities had to come up with some creative solutions specifically to get people access to testing and to vaccines. So so what have we learned and um, you know, what are you seeing with regard to public understanding um, of this issue? Sure. So what I see is that in community after community, immediately into the pandemic, um, communities rallied to come up with ways to get laptops to kids and hotspots to kids so that they could continue their schooling. Hotspots are not necessarily the ideal solution for that. It was, you know, kind of a Band-Aid um, because I think that home broadband is really essential for everybody. Um, 
However, I did not see healthcare having the same conversation. I think in healthcare, it was just totally viewed as that's not our problem. Um, and uh, it, it, in fact, one of the um, nation's leading health systems, who shall go unnamed, that I, I work with, has a digital health playbook for their employees, for the health system. Um, you know, all right, how are we going to deal with this telehealth that they, you know, very rapidly adopted? And on one page of the 87-page manual, it says, here are the things that we do not help patients with. Their internet their devices, their email, how to find, you know, the link to the telehealth appointment, how to change their browser settings, their security settings, their cameras, their microphones. And I'm like, thank you for giving us the list of all the things that people actually need help with. And I think the problem is that helping people to use digital technology is not an area of core competence of healthcare. And insofar as they do it, um, it's been, you know, prior to the pandemic, patient would be finishing a visit, the doctor would say on the way out the door, oh, by the way, did you know you can check your lab results in your patient portal? And the patient says, no, and how do I do that? The doctor says, give me your cell phone and, you know, tries to download the, the app. And that's a terrible use of the doctor's time and the doctors aren't very good at it, which is embarrassing for the doctor and it's embarrassing and uncomfortable for the patient. So we need better models of doing it. And I think the better model is for healthcare to partner with community-based and national digital inclusion organizations who that is their core competency. Now, there's one area where I think there's some overlap, and that is community health workers, I think, are the ideal workforce to train to be digital navigators who might work for healthcare or they might work in a library or a you know, senior computer center, something like that, that help people get connected but then they could also be trained as digital health coaches. So once a patient has been identified as having a gap and referred out to that community organization, gotten a device, gotten broadband, gotten basic digital skills, then this community health worker, digital health coach could help the patient actually use telehealth, the portal, a remote monitor and the like. Have you seen this in practice anywhere yet? So um, I, I have put this together as a model, and I can drop a link um, to where I have the model posted on my website um, for you. Um, I would say that a lot of my clients, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of helping them work through the model. So you know, one organization, so everyone is working on at least one piece of it. Nobody's doing it all. But the first, very first piece of it is monitoring digital health equity. So in other words, a health system needs to look at who is and who isn't using video telehealth, who's only using audio, who is 
not using any telehealth and either going to the doctor's office, which isn't as safe, or the emergency room, and who is avoiding care altogether. So it starts with monitoring and then screening to identify patients who have these needs, referring them out, getting them trained, coaching. Then there's one more piece of the model, and that is tech support. Even if people are trained, um, they're going to have problems in the moment, and you want them to have someone who can jump in right then and get that telehealth visit going. So those people have to be prepared to help people with those basic digital skill type issues. Well, thank you so much for your time um, talking to me, and thank you for quitting your job to devote yourself to this. <laughs> this is very important, and you're doing amazing work, so I'll definitely be keeping up with you. Um, thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Nicole. Thank you again so much, Amy, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.